So last week we began a journey together through the book of Jonah. It's one of the uh, Hebrew prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's, as we looked at last week, one of the most uh, literary, uh, complex, amazing, theologically rich little prophets uh, in the Old Testament. And of course, it's got all of this vivid imagery that you're probably familiar, like a giant storm, a great fish, great lengths to resist God, and then God's great lengths to pursue Jonah and rescue uh, a group of people that he loves. Today, we're going to focus on the part of the message uh, that deals with a bit of the great storm in Jonah. And specifically, we'll be focusing in on Jonah verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. So if you like to follow along in your Bible or your Bible app or whatever, that's where we will be living. Um, but keeping our eyes on the bigger picture is important in a book like this because, you know, I'm taking it pretty slow. We're doing a few verses here, a few verses there. So in order to just kind of get the, the scope, let's just read the first six verses. And let's do it together. A little, little public interaction would be good. So Mike's going to put that on uh, the screen um, and let's read together. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Thank you, God, that you are very concerned about us and about every person we'll ever encounter. Thank you that you have a word for us today. Help us to hear it, to receive it, to respond to it. Amen. So before we jump right into the storm section, I just wanted to recap a little bit of what's going on in the story. The story is set somewhere in the 8th century BC, all right, a long time ago. And it's during um, this, this time period that the word of the Lord comes to this Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we know from uh, the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament that, that Jonah was a prophet under the reign or to the king Jeroboam II. And uh, he was the king of Israel in the northern tribes. This was when those tribes were split in half. You've got Judah in the south in Jerusalem. And Jeroboam was king, and Jonah was the prophet in Samaria in the northern kingdom. And it, why that's important is because if in the 8th century BC, you were to take a poll of a thousand Israelites in the northern kingdom, and you were to ask them, what is your biggest arch nemesis? Like, who are you most afraid of? Who has been the worst to you? 
they would almost all say in that present moment, Assyria, whose capital was Nineveh. That's exactly where Jonah was supposed to go. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The prophet commands him to arise and go to Nineveh um, because God has heard about all this injustice and wickedness going on in Nineveh, and he wants to send his prophet over there to to talk some some truth into them. And, And so Jonah says, I don't want to do that. And so he flees. Now, where Jonah is in Samaria, uh, Nineveh is, um, is about 500 miles to the northeast. It's in, if, if you know your geography over there, which I don't very well, but Tommy, it's in Mosul uh, over in, in Iraq. So that's exactly where Nineveh would be. 500 miles to the northeast of the Israelite, uh, Israel area. Now, what Jonah does is he, uh, he arises like God says, but then he goes down and you start paying attention to these uh, prepositions in the text. It's really interesting. So he goes down to this town called Joppa. He gets on a ship and goes down into the ship, into the belly of the ship, ironically or interestingly. Um, bellies will come up in a few weeks, uh, something else, right? So, and then he goes the opposite direction towards this land called Tarshish, which is in present day, roughly uh, Gibraltar, uh, Gibraltar in, in the southern Spain, right? And, and that's 2,500 miles roughly away from Israel. And he's going far from God. And the text says he's going there to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, as we noticed last week, Jonah isn't just trying to go far from Israel or far from Nineveh. He's trying to go to a place where nobody worships God at all, where he can go and not be reminded of the scriptures, not be reminded of the culture of going to synagogue and going to temple and, and, and paying attention to all the Jewish festivals, Jonah is trying to put blinders on from his faith and his culture and his way. He's trying to get away from God's influence. Jonah resists this command, right? He's headed the opposite direction, but then God gets his attention. The text says that God hurled a great storm. It's the same word uh, that you might use for hurl a spear. He hurls a storm at Jonah and gets his attention. And and it's at this point, I want to pause and say something as clearly as I can, uh, simply and yet theologically significant. I'm going to say two things. Are you ready? Not all storms and not all calamities are the result of our sin. Okay, I'll say that again. Not all storms in our lives, not all the calamities in our lives are the result of our sin. The second thing is, all sin has damaging consequences. Okay. So not every bad thing that happens to you isn't necessarily a result of your sin. But all sin has bad consequences, okay? And you can hold those two things in logical tension, I believe, Ryan. You can tell me later, but I think that's right. <laughs> Sometimes tragic things just happen. The way that the earth was made and the way that it functions and the way that it's designed to sustain life requires things like tectonic plates that that have to move. Like the earth is literally alive in the middle with uh, volcanic activity. And if it were not to be so, if it were to die, we would die. And so what the way that the world is designed is there's going to be earthquakes and that's not your fault. The way the trade winds and the jet stream and the ocean currents uh, uh, 
flow, I mean, it's necessary for providing uh, nutrients, for distributing energy around the world. It's just the way the world works. But you know what happens when those high and low pressure systems pass each other is you get storms, hurricanes, and typhoons. Gravity is a necessary element of life, but it also means that it hurts when you fall. And you can get real hurt or dead if you fall from a high enough place. That's just the way the world is designed. It's not because of your sin or because of the fall. These things aren't punishment. They're part of the dynamic living world in which we live that God made and declared good. My point is that the scriptures warn us not to declare every hardship or tragedy or source of suffering as directly something that God is doing for punishment or an intention grabber or something like that, okay? Now, with that important theological caveat clearly stated, never said I didn't say that, okay? It's also important to recognize that our actions and our inactions, our words, our attitudes, our decisions in life have very real consequences. They, they just do. God has given us, as one theologian said, the dignity of causality. He's made us more powerful sometimes than we want to be, and certainly more powerful sometimes than I think we ought to be. Theologians and philosophers have many ways of nuancing these things and explaining them in detail, but for the sake of simplicity, I'll just give three general categories as to how our, as to how our sin has consequences in the real world. But, but first, let me just say something about sin. Um, what does that word even mean to us anymore, especially to the watching world? Uh, sometimes sin is a reference to individual rebellion against God against his commandments. Sometimes it's a way of speaking about evil and societal structures like racism and injustice or economic injustice or sins committed by governments that oppress people, right? So that's sometimes how we use sin. Still other times sin is used to describe something that's sort of like in the air, like an evil malevolent, malevolent force that we can't see or touch or feel, but it's just there. I think the word sin has a place in our vocabulary. But most often I think it should be maybe in our technical vocabulary, in theological speak. But for preaching in everyday life, I've been leaning toward another way of thinking and talking about sin uh, described in the book Unapologetic by Francis Spooford. It's a, it's a fun read uh, if you want to read that book. But uh, he talks about sin less in terms of what it is and more in the way that it plays out in our real lives. And he uses the acronym HPFU, uh, human propensity to mess things up. We'll stick with that one, we'll go, we'll go PG rated. The human propensity to mess things up. I don't know about you, but if you're talking to your friends that weren't growing up in church and you use the word sin or you use the word human propensity to mess things up, I think it's the second one that makes sense. Like sin, I don't know about that. Oh yeah, humans mess things up all the time. And I mess things up all the time. That resonates with me. So for, for the, most of the remainder of this message, I'm gonna be using the human propensity to mess things up because I feel like it sticks a little bit better for us, right? No matter how well we're doing in life, it seems almost inexplicably inevitable 
that we will do or say or fail to do something that messes up our relationships, our planet, our society, our spirituality, our own self-esteem or, or that of other people, right? It's just that human propensity to mess things up. Husbands, you know what I mean. We always put our mouth or foot in it, right? And again, I, I'm generalizing for the sake of being practical. There are... Um, so when I say these three categories, but I think in general, there's three main categories of the way that we mess things up. The first main category is that there seems to be a general way that the universe is created. Almost like if you had a piece of wood, it's like a grain. If you look at this floor right now, the way that the hardwood slats are laid out is in this vertical direction. This way it's against the grain. If you were to take a credit card and go against this way, you'd hit every one of these lines. But you could go almost the whole way. That way it would be smooth. And there's just a way that the world works. It's the way it's designed. It doesn't matter what culture. It doesn't matter what gender. It doesn't matter what period in history we're talking about. In most cultures, it's just not good to murder people. In most cultures, it's just not good. Like, you're going to be mad if I steal what you have. In most cultures, it's not a good thing to, you know, consistently lie to people you love, right? So there's just sort of a grain, and when we go against the grain, like, it usually doesn't go as well for us. You can think about this in terms of the human body. In general, if you eat well and exercise and stimulate your brain, and, you know, you're going to Typically, in general, the grain of the universe typically points to like, well, you'll be healthier and probably be able to do the things you like to do. And in general, if you go against the grain, in general, if you know you have a steady diet of, of smoking and overeating and inactivity and you just don't get enough sleep because you're playing video games all night, you know, uh, it's in general, you're going to be less healthy and less able to enjoy life, right? Now, um, we all know there's exceptions to the rule, like the person who smokes every day and has a Ron Swanson diet of bacon and scotch, and then they post pictures of them just summiting a new peak this month, and like, okay, you're just a freak show. And then uh, we all know the exceptions to the rule of the person who's super healthy and vegan and all that, and they die of a heart attack or have a stroke and they're young. And it, there's, there's no hard and fast rule, but what I'm talking about is that there's a general grain, the way that things generally work. It's kind of like God baked it into his creation. A second way that humans tend to mess things up is through negligence and ignorance. It turns out what you don't know can hurt you. <laughs> um, like if you decide to go climb a mountain for the first time and you have zero training and zero conditioning and you don't have a guide and you don't have equipment, you're likely to not have a good time if you make it back at all, right? That's just would be ignorant, it would be negligent of you. And, and human beings mess things up all the time through those avenues. We're notorious for doing stupid things. Men out there, how did we survive adolescence? Uh, it is a miracle. <laughs> it is a miracle. I just was, even when I wrote that a few days ago, I was just thinking about, I should be dead there. I should be dead there. I should be like, oh my gosh, okay. <clears throat> we'll have story time some other time. Um, now, if you notice these first two categories of how people tend to mess things up, they're applicable to every single, single human being in any generation across cultures. But the third category gets more specific. 
While the general grain of the universe is somewhat universal, you know, stealing and murder and adultery, those kind of things, um, at some point in history, God started creating special relationships with people, like Abraham and his descendants, and then the people of Jesus grafted in. And he began to, to say, if you want to follow me, if you want to really be human, if you want to really be alive, there's actually, there's actually a better way of living. And, and it's these specific things like love your enemy, um, pray for those who persecute you, uh, it's fine not to murder, but like anger's a real thing. Like, let's talk about that. Let's, let's reconcile with people who are different from us. Like these very specific Christian things, these are not universals that God expects of every human being, but they're, they're things that he, he, he asks of his covenant people. Whether that's in the Hebrew scriptures, like I said, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Israelites, and then to those who begin to follow Jesus in the New Testament, and that would be, that would be us. What's interesting about all of these three categories of human propensity to mess things up is that our messing up doesn't just affect us. That when we mess things up in these three categories, it can hurt other people as well. Sometimes that, uh, that damage is direct and obvious. Like we refuse to treat someone with dignity and respect and they are harmed. Like that just makes sense, right? Uh, but sometimes the damage is peripheral. So like if I neglect my body so that I'm more prone to disease and loss of work and lack of ability, that does, doesn't affect me. It affects, you know, my role as a pastor. It affects my role as a husband. It affects my role as a son and a father. And all of these other relationships get damaged because of my sin, my propensity to mess things up. Sometimes our propensity to mess things up affects every fabric of society in the world. So like our collective choices affect the climate, affect the economy. Our collective attitudes might create a culture that oppresses certain groups of people based on uh, ethnicity or religion or, or sexuality, you name it, we could screw it up. We're good at it. And in this story, Jonah is located in that third category of human propensity to mess things up. See, he's not just going away, uh, going against the grain of the way the world works. And he's anything but ignorant. He actually is a prophet of God. He knows God's word. He's deliberately running away from God. Jonah is actively rebelling against God. And what he's about to figure out is that his actions have consequences that can hurt and even kill other people. First of all, I mean, just his disobedience to go to the Ninevites means that God's chosen way of telling the Ninevites about him is not going there. So like Jonah's refusal to go to the Ninevites is starving the Ninevites of the message of God. So that's one way uh, it can go badly. But then he gets on a ship, captained and crewed by non-Israelites, pagans who worship other gods and goddesses. And he goes down into the belly of the ship and he closes off his senses to the very real storm that's going on outside. He's in denial, like a child plugging their ears and singing a song when you're trying to get them to like clean up the room or something. They think, if I can't hear you, I don't have to obey. But the whole ship 
and her crew are now in danger because God is getting the attention of this prophet who's on the run. And the captain descends now into the belly of the boat where he finds Jonah. He sees him lying down. Isn't that interesting? God tells him to arise, and Jonah's lying down as far low as you can get. And this pagan captain says to Jonah, get up! Get up! Call on your God. Like, I don't know who it is you worship, but like, maybe you can do something because we're going to perish. Sometimes God in his severe mercy brings a storm that forces us to wake up, to wake up. Sometimes he brings an unexpected person to speak the truth to us. A pagan captain speaking truth to a prophet of Yahweh. Don't be surprised if lots of non-Christians might have a good word for us. Don't plug your ears to truth where it's truth. All truth is God's truth. Wake up before you hurt yourself before you hurt other people. Wake up because the way God created the world, I mean, we can, it's foolishness, but we can judge God and criticize him for this. It's just the way it is. The way God created the world is to primarily work through people. I think that's inefficient, idealistic. God, did you know about the human propensity to mess things up? That's just how he does it. And that means we need to be sober and awake, right? We need to wake up to not hide from what he's doing in our lives. And you know what what else it means? It means that you matter. It means that you matter. Every one of us matters. God wants to work in and through us. Jonah receives a storm almost immediately after his disobedience, at least in the story. We don't know exactly like how far he was in the Mediterranean. In the story, it seems pretty quick after he takes off. That's not always how it works, though, is it? A lot of the time, we think we're getting away with our secret little sins in life because nobody else might be noticing or so we think. You cheat on a test once and you don't get caught and you think, that wasn't so bad. Nobody knows. You tell someone lies to get out of immediate trouble and you think, whew, I dodged a bullet there. You think you're being anonymous online or nobody knows what's really happening on your business travels and well, as long as no one knows, no one gets hurt, Right? You take a few of those old painkillers that are still in the drawer to help you sleep a few times. I've, it's all under control, man. I got this under control. I'm in charge. But our propensity to mess things up of sort of, is sort of, like, sort of like going out in the sun without sunscreen on because you have dark complexion like I do. Corey's always on me. Thank you for staying on me. Um, and I'm foolish that way, and I go out a lot, and I forget sunscreen. But you know what happens over time? Gosh, I hope this doesn't happen. I hope this isn't like prophetic. But like, 
you know, it's not something that just shows up immediately, even after a week, even after summers, multiple summers of that. But all of a sudden, it can show up. And anyone with melanoma, you know, knows that it just shows up. And then, oh darn, I have to deal with this. Um, that's a little bit of what are these secret sins or human propensity to messing. That's what they're like. Is we think we're getting away with stuff because we're not getting caught. But what happens is, is that it adds up. It's like a poison, slow release. And, and, and what happens is, is it poisons our, our hearts and our way of thinking. And it makes us feel ashamed deep inside so that we try and without even thinking about it, we put distance between ourselves and we put distance between ourselves and other people and distance between ourselves and God. And you might be saying like, well, why are you even preaching this? Obviously, that is not our story, Chris, because we're in church. We're like right in front of God, right? Uh, well, yeah. But what do we do at church? We come and we put our best face forward and we serve and we get busy. We do God things and we talk God talk. But we wonder, why is it really that hard for us to be still with God? I mean, what's really holding us back? If the God of the universe wants to be still with us and wants to, to be in relationship with us, am I, is my Netflix really that much more important? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we do the church thing. But is there another block? Is there something blocking us between intimacy with God? We fill up our worship time and our devotional time with words. The preacher preaches, sorry. Uh, and even words of scripture. But we rarely slow down just to listen and to receive and to be still. And I think we want to be in control of our own narrative. We want to be our own PR person before God. But there's always a reckoning, you know? And that's not a fun message to share but I feel like that's the message of Jonah 1, 4 through 6. And I'm not at liberty to not declare what's in the scriptures. So there you have it. I'm preaching to myself. There's always a reckoning. You don't get away with stuff. And I've got good news. You know, I talked about kind of the way that God has created the universe with a grain. There's also a grain of grace built into the universe that God can work all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He can work all of it for good. Oftentimes, uh, people in our lives with the most wisdom, with the most patience, with the most humility, with the most self-awareness, are the people who have gone through a storm of a wake-up call in their lives. Think about those people in your life, who they are and what they've been through. There's very few people that I really respect who have not been through hard things. Some of the most truthful, authentic people that I know are those who have found hope in Christ through recovery programs like AA, where they know the propensity to mess things up and they know their need for grace and sobriety, not only from a substance, from a thing, from a crutch, not only sobriety from that, but healing from whatever they were hiding for in the first place. 
Are we in touch with our desperate need for truth and grace? Are we in touch with our desperate need for, for healing as a way of life, not just as an outpatient procedure that we can do when the church isn't looking, that we can do when nobody's looking, but a way of speaking about healing and a, and, a, and a process of being Christ followers where it is the normal and natural thing to deal with our storms, to not be ashamed about it. What a gift, what a severe mercy that through Christ we can be redeemed from our failure, be made whole, be transformed. Not so that we never have the propensity to mess things up again. That's not the point of the Christian walk on this side of the resurrection, by the way. But it's so that we can walk in honesty and humility, knowing that our life depends on Jesus one day at a time. That's the first piece of good news. The second piece of good news that I see in this passage is that God is faithful even when we are not. Wendy read from 2 Timothy 2 earlier in the service. Let me just read verse 13. This is a trustworthy saying. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. He cannot deny us. Or he won't deny us because he can't deny himself. And he's already made a covenant with you through the blood of Jesus. If you're part of the church, you've been through the waters of baptism, like it or not, deconstruct or not, run or not, you are sealed in Christ and he will not be unfaithful to you. Oh, that's such good news. You know, we can't fix all the world's problems. We can't fix all of our problems. Even at our best, we continue to do damage to ourselves and to others and to the planet. We inevitably break faith with God. We inevitably disobey him on a regular basis, but God is faithful, and that is the good news of the Christian message. Let's not forget that. We shouldn't be all polished up. We should be real. That's what God can work with. God is faithful to work in and through the storms in our lives and to get our attention and to point us ever back toward him. And God is so faithful that he caused the storm in his own life to save us. While the prophet, his prophet, Jonah, ran from spreading salvation to those in need, Jesus came at great cost in the storm of his death in order to rescue and to redeem us. Tonight is a healing prayer night. John Epps and I, were, we have the privilege of praying for you if you'd like at these kneeling benches. This can be prayers for physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, healing for someone you care deeply about. We would love to pray for you about those things. But whether you come forward to those benches or not, I want to invite you into this time of prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to show you by his severe mercy where you might be in danger of running away from God, where you might be in danger of going down a path of destruction. Some of you know that you are on that path, and maybe it's a prayer of courage to take the next step in the, the right direction, but some of us are, you know, we're an autopilot. We're still in the belly of the boat. 
It doesn't have to get to the storm stage in your life. God gave us imaginations, and maybe the Holy Spirit wants to work in and through you to to bring up this thing that you think is hidden, that maybe you think is even a big deal, and he wants to bring it to the light. He wants to speak life into you and healing into you. How might God be getting your attention today? How might that good news of Jesus present a way forward for us of life and freedom and forgiveness? John um, and I are going to pray now at these benches. Eventually, there'll be some music. Thank you, Wilson clan. Um, you're always welcome to receive prayer before you play. This is your church, too. Um, If you come forward or not, I encourage you to take the time to seek the Holy Spirit.